Welcome to the world's first known automobile race. It's 4.30 in the morning of August 26, 1867. A small group of men have gathered in the English village of Ashton-under-Lyne, just east of Manchester in the United Kingdom. Isaac Bolton, a steam car pioneer, and engineer Daniel Adamson have climbed aboard their automobiles. Each vehicle has a flat deck dominated by a tall, round boiler resting on two large back wheels and a single wheel on the front with a tiller for steering. Isaac's is a one-cylinder. Daniel's is a bigger twin-cylinder. Once up to steam, they were off. It was revolutionary. It was exciting. And it was illegal. Two years earlier, after heavy lobbying from railway barons and the horse and carriage trade, Parliament had passed the Red Flag Act. Its purpose was to halt the fledgling automobile industry in its tracks. Each automobile, the law stated, must have a crew of three. And a flagman was required to walk at least 60 yards ahead of a vehicle at all times. Which wasn't difficult because the act also capped the speed limit at four miles per hour on open highways and two miles per hour in cities and towns. As if trying to outrun the law, Bolton and Adamson hurtled across the English countryside at speeds upward of 12 miles per hour. Bolton spotted Adamson a quarter of a mile lead, and then, with five passengers in tow, surged ahead to victory. Shortly before sunrise, he arrived in Old Trafford, some eight miles away. Motor racing was born, and it would soon leave the Red Flag Act in its dust. Fast forward to the Formula One racing circuit of today. Bolton and Adamson wouldn't recognize any of this. What began as a merry jaunt down a dirt road has become a $3 billion high-speed, high-stakes industry. It's backed by the world's richest brands, boasts breathtaking feats of engineering, and turns drivers into celebrities. I'm Walter Isaacson, and this is Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. I'm Mario Andretti. Well, okay, Mr. Hotshot. He's got a good car, and he likes to show what it can do. Speed naturally results. Seems like breaking the sound barrier. Crash helmets are a must. The winner gets a gold cup and a kiss. July 1894. Automobile fever has spread through Europe. A group of engineering luminaries are gathered in the home of Count Jules de Dion. Though dressed as a gentleman, he bore a what-are-you-looking-at expression, a reputation for gambling, and a passion for automobiles. That summer, Le Petit Journal had sponsored a hugely successful competition between Paris and nearby Rouen. It wasn't exactly a race, 
The 5,000-franc prize went to the vehicle that could finish the 80-mile journey, quote, without danger and was easy to handle, and in addition was cheap to run. The Count finished first, averaging a breakneck speed of 11.6 miles per hour, but that wasn't enough to win the competition. Spectators, however, were enamored. For most of them, speed and crossing the finish line first were what really mattered. And for De Dion, it was time for a real race. So, on a bright Paris morning, a few months later, 21 entrants gathered at Port Maillot before a massive crowd. There were six steam-powered cars, one electric, two motorcycles, and 13 gasoline engine vehicles. The event attracted current and future automobile legends. Benz, Peugeot, and Daimler. It was here that Edward Michelin pioneered the use of pneumatic rubber tires, which he had to change 21 times during the race. Paul Coquelin was declared the official winner, despite crossing the finish line 11 hours after the first car, driven by Emile Lavasor. Lavasor lost on a technicality because he was driving a two-seater, not a four-seater, as stipulated by the rules. Motor racing quickly became an R&D proving ground for cutting-edge technologies, such as guild-tubed radiators, steering wheels, gear-and-chain transmissions, and for larger, more powerful engines. By 1901, as automobile sales soared, racing cars reached speeds up to 80 miles per hour. Fans wanted more. They wanted faster. The more was easy, but the faster would come at a steep cost. In 1898, motor racing experienced its first fatality when two cars collided along a French country road and rolled down a steep bank. Other deaths followed. The era of city-to-city motor racing was over. Races were thereafter confined to circuits, repeating routes set away from cities and towns. In those early decades, right up until the late 1930s, big-name car manufacturers were the king of racing. But war changed all that. With major automakers retooling their factories for war production, smaller boutique names emerged in racing. Names such as Ferrari, Maserati, Gordini, and Fiat. Organizers soon grasped the importance of an even playing field among cars and races. So a formula system of standards was introduced to which racing cars would conform. The fastest class of these would be called Formula One. Motor racing had come of age. The 1960s was the golden era for Formula One. McLaren, Hill, Clark, and Stewart were among the biggest names in the sport. Technology had made cars faster than ever, but safety had been left behind. It was as exciting as it was dangerous. When Formula One started the World Championship in 1950, it was very different to what we see now. There was very little safety. 
Caroline Reed is the publisher of Formula Money, a site that collects data about the financial side of the racing industry. Drivers didn't always wear seatbelts because they were actually frightened of the cars setting on fire, so they wanted to be able to exit quickly if they needed to. They didn't always have proper crash helmets. The helmets they were wearing were sometimes more like cycle helmets. The tracks were surrounded by bales of hay instead of the professional barriers we see nowadays. Formula One racing underwent a dramatic change. What happened during the 60s and early 70s is that a lot of big-name drivers were getting killed, people like Jim Clark, Bruce McLaren, and one driver, Jackie Stewart, decided that enough was enough. Suddenly we all realised that safety just wasn't there. Sir Jackie Stewart. My wake-up to motor racing safety was an accident I had when I was driving in the the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa-Francorchamps, which is one of the great circuits of the world. We started in dry weather and ran into thunder rain. I hit a river of water, an aquaplane. I knocked down a telegraph pole, I knocked down a woodcutter's hut, and I ended up in the outside basement of a a farm um, house, actually, and was trapped in the car. This was in the days before TV coverage, before GoPro cameras, before drivers had two-way radios. Stewart was alone, in trouble, and running out of time. Fuel tanks had ruptured around me, and I was being burned by what was at that time a very high aviation fuel. Uh, I mean, very toxic. I was trapped in the car for about 20-odd minutes. Graham Hill and Bob Bongerant, Bob's still alive, an American racing driver, two of them went off the road in the same river of water as I did, but there was nothing left to hit. I had knocked it all down, <laughs> more or less. And they tried to get me out the car. If you can imagine, there was no marshals, nobody to assist, no medical help, no ambulance. They had to borrow wrenches from a spectator's car to remove the steering wheel in those days because they weren't immediately removable steering wheels in order to take me out the car. I was drenched in high octane aviation fuel which burns heavily and I was put in the back of a hay truck and um, I was semi-conscious coming and going and, and it was burning my skin off. and. Graham took all my clothes off and then I was lying absolutely naked in the back of this hay truck and he went off and left me on my own looking for help. That really started, if you like, my interest in changing things. Jackie Stewart would lead the crusade for safety in Formula One. But despite its rapidly changing technologies, the world's fastest sport was one of the slowest to embrace change. The governing body at that time seemed to be fast asleep. The car owners were a little nervous because they said, if we're going to put our foot down too hard, some races may be cancelled and therefore they wouldn't be getting the starting money or the the winnings money. Um, So there was a lot of aggravation about the whole thing. The Formula One governing body wanted to expand the sport. And to do that, 
it needed to find traction with American fans. Increasing engine capacity was part of the strategy. Their line of logic was this. Larger, more powerful engines would make the sport faster. Faster, more sophisticated cars would grow the fan base in America. More American fans would tempt the major car manufacturers, deep pockets and all, into Formula One. It would also push Formula One risk-taking beyond tolerable limits. New safety standards and better technologies were needed, but progress was stalled. Formula One fans were reconciled to the occasional fatality. That culture was about to change. Tony Purnell was team principal of the Jaguar racing team. And I think generally the public uh, don't want to see anybody hurt. They don't mind cars flying left, right and center. And they probably like a good smash up, but they always want the driver to get out uh, and kind of brush the uh, dirt off their sleeves and, and smile at everybody and wave. But change did not come quickly. Neither Stewart nor his fellow drivers were about to take a foot off the gas. In June 1970, a group of the world's top Formula One drivers, including Stewart, met in a suite at London's Dorchester Hotel. They were not in a good mood. They had come from a memorial service for their colleague, Bruce McLaren. The drivers believed that many of their crashes were avoidable. The subject at hand was the upcoming German Grand Prix. Sir Jackie Stewart. We asked for certain modifications to be done. Jochen Rindt was sent as a member of the Grand Prix Drivers Association to inspect the Nürburgrings. The organizers and the owners would not alter one thing to make it safer. Not one little thing. You've got to have medical facilities, you've got to have firefighting abilities. And in those days, many of the fire extinguishers that were being used were simply not good enough to put a petroleum fire out. So it was just ridiculous. At Stewart's urging, the drivers agreed to a boycott, at which point he had to cope with a whole new kind of danger. By that time, I was by far the most popular driver in the world. I was winning races, I was winning world championships, but I was getting death threats. Despite a huge public dust-up, the race was relocated. When the German Grand Prix returned to Nürburgring the next year, organizers had met almost all of the driver's safety requests. Stuart's stubbornness was paying off. By then, I was driving cars with steering wheels that were detachable, so that if an accident did occurred, you could get out of the cockpit, um, by which time I was driving with considerably better flame-proof uniforms with much more thermal underwear in case of fire. The helmets had changed impressively. Um, the, 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 the whole structure changed. The management of motorsport changed. But with the dawn of the digital era, Formula One was about to undergo an even bigger change. 
home computing, microprocessors, information processing. With the rise of computer technology in the 1970s, Formula One engineers became early adopters. It started in 1975 when McLaren engineers ran an experiment. By adding digital sensors inside their cars, they could capture 14 data points on an onboard computer, from which it could be downloaded and analyzed later. What if, the engineers imagined, a mechanical problem could be analyzed or anticipated or even solved in real time during a race? eliminating the need for a lengthy pit stop. Tony Purnell was with Team Jaguar. I ran a company that supplied telemetry for many years, so I'm definitely one of the culprits in the history of Formula One here. The first time I went to a race car test, I could hardly believe it. My company and others started to make data loggers, recorders of what the car was experiencing. And then those data loggers and recorders became real time with radio. And that's where telemetry uh, was first coined. In the pits, rows of computer terminals began appearing next to toolboxes. Computer engineers joined pit crews alongside mechanics. As real time telemetry came into use, Fans and reporters began to complain that technology was taking drivers out of the equation and alienating fans at the same time. Today, there's, uh, I think, in excess of 1,200 things regularly monitored on a Formula One car. And sometimes that complexity uh, alienates the fans because... You know, they want to see racing. They, they, they want to see the, the, the man versus machine. They don't really want a, a, a geeky sport with, with engineers doing sums in the pits to decide the race. The Formula One governing body resolved to scale back the use of telemetry data by 2021. By the 1990s, Formula One R&D produced a torrent of innovations, both digital and physical. It gave us anti-lock brakes, active suspension and traction control, and CURS, the Kinetic Energy Recovery System. It captures energy generated from braking and converts it into a usable burst of energy. For racing engineers, these inventions marked another golden age. At least it did until Formula One began banning them. Tony Purnell. It is very much like a dance. And what um, underlies this is the fact that everybody knows if we didn't have regulations, the cars would be so fast that no driver could drive them because they simply couldn't breathe or keep their heads up, the the G-forces would be so great that um, the the cars couldn't be driven. And and they would be super dangerous because the drivers would be in danger of blacking out around the bends. So de facto, we have to have regulations to keep the speeds of the cars in check. And 
in reality, you know, it's good for everybody and the system would break down without them. Safety improvements must continue. One of the newest is the halo, a protective frame above the cockpit designed to protect the driver's head. Critics complain that it's unnecessary. Drivers complain that it impedes their vision. But the life-saving benefits of the halo outweigh its drawbacks. Caroline Reed. A few weeks ago at the Belgian Grand Prix in Spa, um, it was fortunately proved that the halo was a very good idea because a young driver driving for Sauber, a guy called Charles Leclerc, he was in a big crash at the first corner and another car came over the top of him and he he got out of the car and there were tyre marks across the halo. The halo is welcome proof that Formula One has embraced the safety first mantra. Former drivers such as Mark Webber and Sir Jackie Stewart argue that while safety is a priority, Formula One must always leave room for drivers to make mistakes. And therein lies the tension. Retired Formula One driver Mark Webber. If there's no mistakes happening, I'm not talking about a crash into the wall, but I'm talking about just mistakes. Like if the drivers are going around and making absolutely no errors, uh, then that obviously would be quite boring to watch, I'd imagine. There is a thrill of an accident. And even as racing drivers, many times Jim Clark and Graham Hill and I would rush up to a corner where we knew there was going to be incidents. It wasn't, we don't want to see anybody die, but we saw people make mistakes, some of them silly little mistakes, they didn't even hit anything. But it was amusing for us, as it is exciting to see a big accident. But if the driver is sitting in a survival cell, and if there are firefighters right to the accident and medical facilities right to the car, sometimes even before it stops, that's exciting. That's what part of motor racing is. And that's part of its, its popularity. And today, it's remarkable how safe motor racing is. The speed of the accidents, the dynamics involved, and yet the drivers are stepping out after huge accidents. For me, uh, I mean, I couldn't be happier in that respect. A single Formula One car now costs tens of millions of dollars to build. Progress is measured in millimeters and fractions of a second. And on average, changes are made to the car every 20 minutes. These modern engineering marvels each contain more than a half mile of wiring. On a single race weekend, its hundreds of sensors generate 100,000 data points per second. And those data points are used to make decisions in real time. Inevitably, big data is playing a growing part in the world's fastest sport. Yet Formula One drivers, fans, writers, and philosophers know something that machines don't. Pit crews, data crunchers, technicians, and brilliantly complex machines may be the lifeblood of Formula One, but it's the driver who will always be the hero. In that sense, the essence of racing really hasn't changed in 150 years. Give or take about 190 miles per hour. 
I'm Walter Isaacson, and this is Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. In the next episode, we're taking on the world of politics and examining the disruption that digital technology has had on our political process. From the micro-targeting of potential donors to widely broadcast messages over Twitter, technology has fundamentally changed the way we elect and interact with our leaders. And if you want more information about how technology has changed Formula One racing, you can head to our website at delltechnologies.com slash trailblazers. Thanks for listening.